I'm Bud Bacone. This is Hibbing, Minnesota, circa 1926. Now, I know what you're thinking. What brings down and back to Bob Dylan's hometown? Well, the town of Hibbing, named for prospector Frank Hibbing, is also the site of a rich iron ore deposit. A decade earlier, Swedish immigrant Carl Eric Wickman, a laid-off drill operator, needed to find another vocation. Automobile sales didn't pan out, though he had success selling seats in an unsold car for trips to Duluth and elsewhere with his business partner and fellow Swede Andy Anderson. They would shuttle as many as 15 passengers in the seven-seat vehicle. For 15 cents, the two would pick up miners from any of Hibbing's ubiquitous saloons and pour them into the mine just outside of town. Business was good. Good enough to absorb rival businesses, including the Yellowway Company, which ran between Los Angeles and New York, a five-day, 14-hour excursion. So, in 1926, when Wickman's Northland Transportation Company merged with safety coach lines, they needed a new handle. They chose Greyhound, which fit the conventional gray-painted buses in their fleet, so colored, some say, to absorb road dust with little change to its appearance, and so named to channel the image of the sleek, speedy sighthound whose pedigree stretches back to the days of the pharaohs. For those reasons, Greyhound became known to many as the Dirty Dog. And for a quarter century, business boomed as Greyhound provided affordable travel throughout the continent. It took Americans to vacation destinations and to the homes of distant relatives. It shuttled musicians and sports teams, students and salesfolk. But by the 50s, America's post-war boom began pooping the party. USA in your Chevrolet, America's asking you to call. Drive your Chevrolet through the USA, America's the greatest land of all. The new interstate highways and the rise of car travel horned in on the Greyhound bus business. Auto sales thrived with the might of Madison Avenue behind them. So the Greyhound brass fought back with some Madison Avenue mercenaries of their own. With help from Grey Advertising, they unleashed, literally, Lady Greyhound. <gasps> Purchased from a breeder in Clay Center, Kansas, she was named Steverino during early appearances on The Steve Allen Show. When that sponsorship deal ended, she was renamed Lady Greyhound, appearing on TV with Jack Benny, Art Linkletter, and Edward R. Murrow. So began a wildly successful 10-year PR campaign in her diamond-studded tiara and collar and wearing a Go Greyhound jacket. She offered pautographs and posed for photos. She opened a terminal in Detroit by biting through a ribbon made of dog biscuits. And for Lady Greyhound, local reporters were but a plaything. 
Having brushed up hastily on my caninean, I felt prepared for her when she bounded out of the bus at the terminal on Blanding Street last night. A dignified and poised lady of four mature years, Lady Greyhound knew exactly what to do. She headed straight for the knot of pressmen gathered for her arrival on the latest type of Greyhound scenic cruiser. At her peak, Lady Greyhound logged 25,000 miles a year and happily for her handlers at Greyhound and Grey Advertising. The public never learned her one dark secret. Lady Greyhound never traveled by bus. She couldn't. Evidently, Greyhound's strict no-pet policy applied also to its spokes dog. She'd be shuttled quietly from city to city in a chartered plane, and when that wasn't possible, she'd take a commercial flight in a crate, which she hated. Wouldn't you? It's not the dog that needs training, but the owner. I am 50% pointer. There it is, there it is, there it is. The American Kennel Club. Lady boy! Toto two? Toto two? And of course, Lassie. Down and Back. Stories from the AKC Archives. With Bud Bacone. Dog and talk to listen, get your pet complete nutrition, feed them sturdy, make them sturdy, happy, friendly, pet, Marketing products to dog owners is almost as old as marketing itself. Some of radio's earliest jingles grappled for a share of the pet product market, which last year topped $100 billion for the first time. Bonus points if you recognize the voice of Thurl Ravenscroft, the original voice of Tony the Tiger, and the man who sang, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. What many marketers have been slower to learn is the value of dogs as marketing ambassadors. Case in point, Taco Bell. 1997, their agency created a TV ad featuring a chihuahua named Gidget. Its success stretched the one-off commercial into a three-year campaign with the Spanish catchphrase, I want Taco Bell. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Gidget would emerge from retirement just once to make an ad for Geico. Now, as with any breed thrust into the spotlight, the Taco Bell campaign was good and not for the Chihuahua. Sandra Whittle, then president of the Chihuahua Club of America, loved that the campaign captured the little dog's big spirit. Yet she also lamented the breed's meteoric rise in popularity, which rose in the ranks from 12th to 8th among AKC-recognized breeds within a year. Inevitably, many dogs found themselves with owners who, however good their intentions, were unprepared or not suited for the responsibility. The club soon found itself taking action to help chihuahuas who landed in rescue, either abandoned or surrendered to the pound. Why dogs as corporate mascots and spokes pets? 
Writing in Forbes, the head of one online pet product company explained that dogs provide a shortcut to building relationships with consumers because canines are quicker to engender trust. Hence his company's use of a boxer avatar to interact with online visitors. Others offer research to show that the use of dogs online and in social media can dramatically increase social media engagement. Yet, long before modern marketing science, a few prescient intuitive companies chose dogs as corporate mascots just because. Perhaps the most storied of these is Nipper. There are several variations to this story, so, in the finest journalistic tradition, we'll share the one we like the best. This one goes back to 1880s England. Nipper was a terrier belonging to one Mark Barad, a scenery designer for a London theater. When Barad died, Nipper was adopted by his brother, Francis, a landscape painter. History records that Nipper was a fox terrier, yet a biography written about the dog, likely unauthorized, cites that Nipper was probably a mixed breed, part fox terrier, and likely also some bull terrier. The painter and dog would spend time together in the artist's studio, which was equipped with one of the latest marvels, a newfangled wax cylinder phonograph. Every now and then, Barad would notice something peculiar. The terrier would stand staring into the bell of the phonograph with his head cocked. It is difficult to say how the idea came to me, the artist would later recall, beyond the fact that it suddenly occurred to me that to have my dog listening to the phonograph with an intelligent and rather puzzled expression would make an excellent subject. Gripped by the fever dream that comes only in a moment of true creative inspiration, Barad forgot all about the image and went back to what he was doing. Saunter forward several years to 1898, Nipper had been gone three years when Barad revived the idea and created the now iconic painting from memory. Less inspiring was his title, the prosaic dog looking at and listening to a phonograph. His chest swelling with entrepreneurial pluck, he brought the painting to the Edison Bell Phonograph Company and offered the work for sale as a promotional piece. The Edison Bell Brass thanked him, informed him dogs don't listen to phonographs, and showed him the door. According to legend, Barad took the painting across the proverbial street to Bell Edison's arch-rival, the Gramophone Company, who took a flyer on the painting with two caveats. He must replace the cylinder player with a disc-playing gramophone and repaint the black bell to appear brass. A grateful gramophone company paid Barad 50 pounds sterling for the painting and another 50 for the copyright. But it wasn't especially famous at the time. The gramophone company used the image only sparingly over the years, though it did catch the eye of gramophone inventor Emil Berliner, who was working with the Victor Talking Machine Company, which sought U.S. rights to the work. In 1929, the Victor Company was acquired by the Radio Company of America, RCA, which set out to make Nipper a star. 
In the mid-30s, as Nipper appeared in countless RCA print ads, 20,000 large papier-mâché Nipper replicas were produced as store displays. Some enterprising dealers installed speakers in Nipper's chest, playing hit records for delighted shoppers. During World War II, cartoonists deployed Nipper for the war effort in parody cartoons depicting Hitler as the horn of the phonograph, yelling commands at Mussolini assuming the role of the dog. The caption was, of course, his master's voice. RCA would commission a well-known sculptor to recreate Nipper. There were Nipper salt and pepper shakers, bronze replicas presented to dealers as achievement awards, rubber cast replicas, and plush toys. A needlepoint company sold Nipper hook rug kits and silver coins with the dog's image. In 1954, a number of statues of Nipper, each 28 feet high, were placed atop RCA distribution centers for a time Nipper overlooked Chicago and Los Angeles. Today, the last of those statues remains perched atop a building in Albany. Decades after the distributor closed shop, his head cocked slightly, listening to, well, Albany. Pound the pavement in a large city for any length of time, and it's not long before your dogs are killing you, especially if you're wearing the old-school dress shoes popular through the first half of the 20th century. No one knew this better than James Gaylord Muir, a sales executive with the Wolverine Shoe Company. The company had developed a soft hide shoe with soles made of foot-friendly rubber. But the company lacked a marketing angle, and yes, what follows is another of those come grano salis or grain of salt stories. Over dinner one night, hush puppies were served and became the subject of conversation. Why the name, he wondered. That's when he learned the folklore. Fried cornmeal had long been popular in the South. During the Civil War, it's said that soldiers might feed them to quiet a barking dog when they sensed the Yankees might be approaching. Muir knew well that barking dogs was vernacular for aching feet and quickly imagined that a shoe called Hush Puppies promised a remedy. And if you happen to wander by Chicago's National Shoe Fair in 1958, you would have seen buyers mobbing the Hush Puppy booth. The Basset Hound was chosen as brand icon presumably because it conveyed easygoing, reliable comfort. Having a dog as a brand symbol was a prudent choice. The relationship between humans and dogs is a constant, but the times and fashion were a changer. The 60s marked the beginning of the end of suits, ties, and dress shoes as the everyday American uniform. 1959, England's Prince Philip chose to wear hush puppies on a visit to the U.S. Perry Como and members of Frank Sinatra's legendary Rat Pack wore them. More importantly, decades before the word influencer came into vogue, counterculture icons wore them. In particular, some British invasion bands took to them, and therein lies a tale. In 1965, during a Rolling Stones concert in Sacramento, 
Keith Richards' guitar brushed against an ungrounded microphone, creating a serious shock and knocking him unconscious. Medics, it is said, concurred that the crepe sole of Keith Richards' shoes insulated him and may have saved his life. The familiar droopy face of the people-friendly Basset Hound served the brand well over many years to the point where the breed itself is often nicknamed Hush Puppy. In the early 1990s, Chicago ad agency DDB Needham had a big problem to solve. Their client, Anheuser-Busch, was in third place in the lucrative light beer market. Bud Light needed a lift. To target beer drinkers in their early 20s, they created what they hoped was an irresistible party animal character and named him Spuds McKenzie. Spuds was an anthropomorphized bull terrier dressed to the nines at the center of party after party, flanked always by attractive young women. Yes, for many reasons, the campaign would not likely pass any 2021 sniff tests. At first, the campaign targeted mostly college campuses, though the dog's popularity grew, enough so that Anheuser-Busch decided to elevate him to the most conspicuous ad medium this side of selling space on the face of the moon, the Super Bowl. As America watched the Giants have their way with the Broncos, the entire nation got its first glimpse at its new bull terrier media darling. The campaign and the dog would be hugely popular. There were Spud's toys, posters, and t-shirts, and more importantly for Anheuser-Busch, a 20% rise in sales. With the campaign's success came more than its share of controversy. The Super Bowl notwithstanding, most of the campaign's TV ads ran late at night to prevent accusations that the popular dog was appealing to underage drinkers. That very prospect incurred the wrath of Senator Strom Thurmond, who waved a Spuds McKenzie doll on the floor of the Senate to punctuate his displeasure, probably not a moment the senator pictured when he first ran for office. Fearing that same underage appeal, Spalding High School in Barrie, Vermont, among other places, declared that Spuds McKenzie t-shirts violated the school dress code. In Columbus, the brewer was forced to withdraw holiday-themed beer cases featuring Spuds McKenzie in a Santa Claus suit. For, as everyone knows, Ohio law prohibits any depiction of Santa Claus in alcohol advertising. The only one unconcerned about all the ruckus was the bull terrier herself. Yes, herself. In one of the 80s more notable dog scoops... The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reported that Spuds McKenzie was a her, not a him, and that her name was Evie, and that she lived with her owners in North Riverside, Illinois. Though strictly speaking, she was registered in the American Kennel Club records as Honey Tree Evil Eye. Her owners, rueful of growing press attention, could not have been pleased when People magazine published their full home address. Evie's fame might not have concerned her, but it raised flags among members of the Bull Terrier Club of America who understood the dangers of fad breeds and how they can attract 
inexperienced and less conscientious owners, those steeped in breed misconceptions. The kind that might be set right by, yes, an AKC breed biography. Belying her ancient roots as a bloody combatant, today's Bull Terrier is among the most comical and mischievous citizens of dogdom. She's playful and endearing, sometimes stubborn, but always devoted. These unique eggheads are exuberant, muscular companions who thrive on affection and exercise. Bull Terriers are robust, big-boned dogs who move with a jaunty stride suggesting agility and power. The breed's hallmark is a long, egg-shaped head with erect and pointed ears and small, triangular eyes that glisten with good humor. Coats come in two types, white and any other color, either solid or with white markings. A well-made Bull Terrier is the picture of muscular determination and balance. There are four keys to this breed's happiness. Early socialization with dogs and people, firm but loving training, ample exercise, and lots of quality time with her adored humans. With that, there is no more loyal, lovable, and entertaining companion. This is the ultimate personality breed. When Mack Trucks chose a bulldog as their corporate symbol, or when Wolf Schmidt Vodka employed Borzois as the face of their brand, or when RCA adopted the image of Nipper, marketers understood and leveraged the ageless bond that draws humans to canines. And how the very sight of a dog draws on an ancient affinity more powerful than likable humans or watertight sales pitches. Unlike celebrity spokespeople who come and go with each generation, the special human-canine connection is both timeless and hardwired. And while the last half century may have eroded popular trust in marketing and media and authority, dogs have retained their power to melt social barriers, winning over humans as very few humans ever could. A tip not lost on the world's $350 billion marketing industry. Down and Back, stories from the AKC archives. Visit akc.org to learn more about all things dog and find bonus materials for this episode. Follow the AKC on Instagram at American Kennel Club. On Twitter at AKC Dog Lovers. And let us know what you thought of the show. If you're new to the show, subscribe with your favorite podcast provider to catch up on season two and dig into all of season one. Founded in 1884, Many dog years ago, the American Kennel Club is the recognized and trusted expert in breeds, health, and training. We advocate for responsible dog ownership and are dedicated to advancing dog sports. Research for Down and Back provided by the AKC Library and Archives, the only national repository dedicated to the sport and enjoyment of the purebred dog. Learn more about the collections at akc.org library. No humans were harmed while making this show.